0: Welcome to Del Bedel, Heart to Heart Conversations with the Global Iranian Diaspora, a podcast of the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University. We are your hosts for this exciting episode, Sounds of the Diaspora, Persian Pop in Tehranjulus. My name is Samuel Singleton, and I'm here with my co-host, Nazli Buzadi. We are interns at the Center. Today we'll be discussing the role of music in the Iranian diaspora specifically in the hub of Persian pop music production Los Angeles, otherwise known as Tehrangelis. Music around the globe is a means to entertain, emote, celebrate, as well as to process grief and pain, and love in life. For those of us in the Iranian diaspora, music has often helped to connect us to our parents' homeland, mother culture, as well as to soothe feelings of displacement, pain and helplessness and to connect with our history and culture. Music has been a mainstay of life in the Iranian diaspora and Los Angeles has been ground zero for the production, circulation and distribution of music by Iranian pop artists over the past four decades. Los Angeles has been the home of record shops on Westwood Boulevard and a source of inspiration for other musicians including artists who sample Persian music from earlier generations or in western rap The soundtrack of Iranian life can be found in every corner of the world, but today we'll be talking about Los Angeles as the wellspring for where much of that music originated. Because of the length and the richness of our conversation, this episode on Persian pop music in Tehrangelis will be in two parts. To discuss the history and nuances of Persian
1: pop music today, we are proud and honored to be joined by two expert intellectuals, Professor Arash Saidinya and Professor Farzana Ahemasi. Born in Esfahan and raised in Los Angeles, Arash Saidinya has studied political science at UC Berkeley, creative writing at Cal State Northridge, and law at Harvard University. And he is currently a professor of English at Los Angeles City College. Professor Saidinia has served as a contributing editor to the magazine B. and is a DJ and collector, working for several decades to assemble an archive of vintage Iranian popular music. He also co-curated the highly influential compilation Pomegranates, Persian Pop, Funk, Folk, and Psyche of the 60s and 70s. Professor Farzana Hemasi is an associate professor in the ethnomusicology department at the University of Toronto, She received her doctorate with distinction from Columbia University and has held fellowships with the University of Pennsylvania and Columbia University. Professor Hammasi is currently working on a collaborative project on music in Toronto's Kensington Market, and her recent work regarding the Tehrangelis music scene, Dreaming, Intimacy and Imagination in Southern California's Iranian Pop Music has garnered significant praise. Thank you both for joining us today.
0: Thank you both so much for speaking with us today. We wanted to start off by asking if you can both give us an overview and trajectory of your careers in music. Perhaps you can both go over the way music has informed your choices and the way that the specific music of Los Angeles has given you a window into either Iran or Iranian culture.
2: Well, music has been an important part of my life since childhood. My mother is American and is a trained vocalist in the Western classical tradition. When I was born in Shiraz in 1975, my mother was teaching in the music department at what was then Pahlavi University. She was actually teaching Persian music to Iranians, which is a great irony of the 1970s that such a thing would even ever occur. I grew up with Iranian art music and with... Western classical music. But for me, Iranian pop music was what I heard at social gatherings. And I was fascinated by the fact that it seemed to have a lot of cultural value in terms of people getting together and creating the kind of environment that people wanted to socialize in. But it wasn't valued as an art form, and nor was it particularly valued as a potential profession so that when I expressed some interest in performing pop music, not Persian pop, but just you know, regular pop music, Western pop music, I got a lot of discouragement right, from my family, which is probably something a lot of people can relate to if they've had that conversation with their family members. I was really fascinated by that tension between value systems and, and values in a sense. Um, so I went to Oberlin College and I studied music there. I was really active in music and it wasn't until I graduated college and I went back to Iran for the first time since I was little, that I got to see Tehrangelis pop outside of diaspora and really see it in the homeland and see and see it in people's homes, right? See it sort of animating events there as well. So then I became really fascinated by what this music might mean for people within the country at the same time that it was being produced by and sort of... In, in diaspora by diasporic Iranians imagining Iran right so because so much of the music sort of talks about, uh, nostalgically about the past or about Iran or imagines Iran differently than it might be on the ground. A brighter future for Iran is often times imagined in these songs. I got a PhD in ethnomusicology and when it came time to choose my dissertation topic, I had a lot of different things that I was interested in but I kept coming back to Tehrangelis pop partially because it wasn't already discussed in the literature in any serious way so I felt like I could contribute something there and also because the questions that I had even from a young age about it never really went away. I became even more interested in it the more I learned about its connections to pre-revolutionary pop music to the way that it spread throughout diaspora and into Iran via different kinds of media and so on and so forth.
3: I've been obsessed with music for as long as I can remember and so music itself has been essential to my life. Always. I've collected music and got really interested in the music of, well, let's put it this way. I mean, I've always collected music and I've been, I was fortunate to grow up at a time in the 70s and 80s when musical subculture was really rich and floated through, I would say, some of these subcultures and was very much a part of music subculture and became at first ad hoc and then perhaps more seriously, a DJ. And that pursuit is itself an important dynamic in my life and has been for many, many years and forms, I think, the basis for what I would characterize in some sense as a interest in creating a kind of archive or archives. And it was my it was my interest in collecting and in and in DJing that laid the groundwork for me to pursue more seriously Persian pop music when it comes to Persian pop and collecting it, it's not an easy thing to do. And for a, a number of reasons, uh, my mother, as I often say, was really crucial in as a catalyst for my collection of Persian pop music because she had literally stored a cache in a suitcase in her sister's house in Tehran. And it was that suitcase that became, in some very real sense, the spark that lit the fire. But Persian pop has always been a part of my sonic landscape and a feature of the terrain as someone who grew up in Los Angeles, and so in retrospect, largely in retrospect, I have come to realize how much I was exposed to key moments. Really, I think in the in the life of this town that I that I live in, if not key moments, then really important uh, dynamics and really important places and exposure and proximity to and encounters with really really important people. It's something that. I wouldn't say I necessarily took for granted, but didn't necessarily pay attention to the way that I pay, pay attention to it now, having navigated or found my way to the music of the, of the pre-revolution. So in, in a way, my interest in music and DJing and searching for sounds that interested me laid the groundwork to discover the music of the pre-revolution and appreciate it as part of a let's say, pop international and that experience or that, that process, um, that adventure of discovery, uh, brought me back to LA in a sense and to the, and to the, to the pop music of, uh, Los Angeles as a diasporan. my focus on the diaspora is born of necessity and is essential for me in an attempt to imagine my identity, not just to understand it, but to imagine it.
0: So both of your research and interests lie in Tehran's pop music that was developed both before and after the revolution in 1979. Farzan, we would like to begin by asking you what defines Persian pop music? Specifically, can you explain Shishohash to our audience?
2: Persian pop is defined by so much more than what kind of rhythm it has. I'm happy to get to that in a second, but I think it's a good idea to talk about how we think about what's popular in the, in the beginning or, you know, from the outset. So one of the terms that we use in Persian to speak about popular music is to say that it's mar domi. So it's of the people, right? And to say that something is mar domi and of the people always should uh, spawn the question of which people, of all the people or not. So the music that uh, we hear or sometimes associate most strongly with Los Angeles is dance pop that has a really strong uh, dance beat. And oftentimes, you know, now there's quite a bit of diversity and there really was from the beginning a diversity in the kinds of rhythms that were employed everything from a pretty straightforward disco to um, high energy to EDM to all different types of rhythms. But what we hear a lot from the earliest recordings in Los Angeles and to the present um, is an emphasis on two main rhythms. Uh, One is the sort of simplified coastal rhythms uh, colloquially called bandari. Refers to the southern gulf coast of Iran but actually sounds pretty different from what people might play on acoustic drums. And then the other one is what you referred to Shishohasht. So Shishohasht is a really super colloquial term that means six and eight. Uh, people sometimes is actually just a grammatically incorrect term that it should be shesh hashtom, six eighths, which really refers not to a rhythm but to a meter. Six eighth notes per per measure. But what it refers to is a rhythmic pattern. Um, also called extremely colloquially dimbol which is an automatopoeia with the sound of the rhythm that the rhythm makes so dimbol 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 and and pretty much all of us um, who have grown up listening to any of this music or have had much exposure to that some may have may have either personally experienced or seen it happen on the dance floor or in my case even in the lecture hall where i'm giving a very serious lecture about you know popular music and the iranian diaspora and i put on a little bit of that dun-dun-dun-dun and somebody starts winking at me and starts to shimmy, right? It's like very disconcerting to all of a sudden feel that the music that you're playing has suddenly made a connection with people at a very physical level. So this rhythm that drives a lot of Iranian pop music is present in many different facets of Iranian music prior to the revolution. Um, It's not just something invented in Los Angeles, though the argument I make in my book is that it has come to be quite associated with Los Angeles. This basic rhythmic pattern can be found in instrumental dance pieces called rang that will close uh, art music performances of a Daska. So you'll have a bunch of different um, like sort of fast and slow sections um, of a very meditative often Piece uh, with a vocalist or with instrumentalists or vocalists and instrumentalists and can be very, you know, um, mystical poetry by Hafez or Rumi or, you know, anybody. And then we have a sort of light dance piece at the end, which people don't literally dance to, but at one point could have been danced to and also has this kind of rollicking rhythm to it. You also hear this rhythm in Ruhozi, improvisatory urban theater, as an accompaniment. You hear it sometimes accompanying our nursery rhymes. It'll go very well with all of that, right? So this sort of the pervasiveness of this rhythmic pattern, um, this long and short, right? Long, short, short, long. You hear in our speech and in our music. So after the revolution, the we'll get back to this question of which people and who, right? Prior to the revolution, you didn't hear a lot of this shisho hash in the mainstream musriya pop that was played a lot on the radio. You'd heard it some, but where you really heard it was in more um, Mochrebi style, so who became people who became known as lower class professional musicians who primarily served to entertain others rather than as distinguished from people who made like art music for contemplation or who were honarmandon, right? So even pop artists uh, Guglush and Dariush, even prior to the revolution, would refer, be referred to as Armandon rather than mochreb, right? Even though people would refer to them as Motreb to insult them. <laughs> and indeed, some of them had uh, this kinds of root in this history of being professional performers. I'm going in a very circuitous route because one of the things that I try to talk about in the book with relation to this rhythm is that it has this very ambiguous history. On the one hand, it's very traditional, and on the other hand, it's um, very much associated with Los Angeles, and a kind of feeling of needing to damp or spawning happy activity or being connected to that Moitrebi past that people feel a little bit anxious about sometimes. They will sometimes not feel that this is the most respectable music. And even musicians themselves will some, would sometimes talk to me and say that they didn't like to perform this kind of tour music, this kind of music that was just for making money. One other thing to say about this rhythm is that it emerges in Los Angeles in full force at the very moment that um, it is suppressed domestically in domestic music productions. So you don't hear this dance rhythm in very many recorded performances or recorded albums from Iran between 1979 and the late 90s. By the time you get to the late 90s and there's the sort of reintroduction of pop into domestic Iranian cultural production, then you maybe have a little bit here and there. But this is a part of Iranian culture, right, and part of Iranian history, this, this type of rhythm, which was essentially sort of erased or suppressed for a little bit of time. And that came out very strongly within diaspora. And it's through that process of sort of exile and suppression and growth that it came to be associated so strongly with the kind of pop that we hear coming out of LA.
0: What other dance styles can you compare Shisha hash to? So, one of my
2: favorite interviews that I ever did was with Shahwal Shabhari, and he talked to me about, about this rhythm, Irani, this, you know, shisho hashta for him, being in Iranian's blood. And that people who weren't born in that tradition, um, or who hadn't been, had a lot of exposure to that from birth, or from very early on, wouldn't be able to play it. You see that kind of discourse linking rhythm and a kind of ethno, almost racial identity, in or national identity in lots of places in the world. So if you think about the clave uh, pattern, the duck, 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 in in a lot of Latin music or a lot of Caribbean music, people will sometimes say that clave is in our blood, right? That we hear that and we can play that and it's part of the thing. There's a discourse in, for a long time, in, in African-American music that's also made about African-Americans by others, sometimes in a very negative way, talking about connections between certain types of rhythm and having a sort of a sort of national or even racial feeling. So when I heard him say that, I immediately, you know, when I heard Shabal Shabpari say, well, nobody can play this kind of music Music, uh, Except Iranians. I got kind of nervous, you know, because I started thinking, is he saying that there's something inherent about Iranians that that is sort of like trans historical transnational, that there's some sort of essence, you know, because I feel like I'm supposed to uh, be very critical of that idea that there is an essential racial or national characteristic that would go with anybody's background. But as I began to think about it more, I started to turn the question in my mind towards what is that kind of language? What does that kind of language point to, right? Uh, Nobody's gonna be able to solve the answer to that problem. What is the national rhythm of Iran, right? It doesn't make sense. (laughs) Also, there's so many ethnicities. We all have different, you know, there's uh, people have different biographies, you know. But the question to me, did point to what does it mean to be essentially Iranian. And in the revolution, that was a huge question, right? What does it mean? Is Islam the center of our identity? Is, um, is connection to the West centered of our identity? What do we do with the stuff? What do we do with sexuality? You know, what do we do with uh, popular culture? What do we do with all of these things? And some of the answers to those questions, well, I won't go towards answers, but I'll say that, um, I heard a lot of that questioning in his assertion that there was something essentially Iranian, even in the face of all of this upheaval and change and all of these debates about what it means to be Iranian. And I heard in what he was saying that he, as a musician in Los Angeles, had something to contribute to what it meant to be Iranian and something to sustain in this rhythm that a lot of people don't like at all, (laughs) but almost everybody has trouble not dancing to.
1: You know, Farzana, I'm really glad that you brought up this aspect of how Shishahasht is not necessarily the only thing that defines Persian pop music, or even just Iranian music in general. The aspect of nostalgia also plays an important role, especially in the way we engage with this music. Which brings me to our next question for Arash. We know that you co-curated a compilation called Pomegranates, and we were wondering if you could explain the process of that experience and perhaps how nostalgia played a role in that process.
3: Yeah, nostalgia does play a role because the Persian pop music industry was shut down and then had to reconstitute itself. And that's a very painful, intense, historical reality that I think demanded to be claimed and to be presented, I think, with care. There are a lot of mercenaries uh, and there are a lot of people for whom Persian pop music is just another quote unquote world music to profit from in any number of ways in terms of, let's say, as trophies for, for DJs, as a boot, another bootleg for white American or white European to to, to sell pr- primarily to other white Americans and white Europeans, reclaiming that music means coping with and expressing certain kinds of loss. And that's really important. At the same time, I would say that in what, what motivated that, a big part of what motivated that project was to situate the Persian pop tradition in what I've called the pop international as a music that has Indigenous and exogenous elements that's really unlike, very much like other things, but also unlike other things. And to highlight its unique qualities, but to place it in a context of, let's say, um, international music. And so you see that in the grooves of Persian pop, real similarities and influences that derive from the phenomenal. African-American traditions, and traditions in instruments from places like Turkey and India and the African continent. But there is this element of, okay, this was the music of certain generations, and what happened was that the music quite literally stopped and then started again. Now, that's an oversimplification insofar as there was music being made in the time of the revolution and there are overlaps in terms of, or there are places in, let's say, there are, in Los Angeles, music is being made. And so it's not as simple that in Los Angeles, the music stopped. For example, uh, music production was happening in Iran prior to the revolution by Iranians and members of Iranian minorities here in uh, Los Angeles. That's a really interesting history that I'm trying to archive and understand because it, these are not well-known records and they're not it's not a it's not something that's been exhaustively pursued and researched because of the ruptures uh, that happened during and after the revolution a way in which that music gets fixed in the collective imagination and that is i think an important element of nostalgia and there is real political aspects to claiming and identifying with a music within the context of a revolution and the migration and exile and displacement that comes for so many Iranians under a variety of circumstances. And so people's attachment to the music is um, profound and intense and at times fraught and very, very much charged. I think you know, a lot of these things come out, for example, in Gugush's Return to the Stage, if you will. I mean, you could look at a moment like her performance at the at the forum in Inglewood, you know, as a as a really important moment of individual and collective performance. Not just Gugush's staging and singing of these songs, but the performative aspects of the audience in relation to uh, the performer, so there 's a lot that can be, that, that, that can be said here, and it 's important to emphasize that nostalgia is a profoundly important aspect of the Iranian psyche, writ large, you know beyond just the confines of, of Iran or um, not simply outside of its physical borders and it 's important to imagine i for me imagine Iran beyond its borders and to talk about Iran in a way that is complex, and that has to do with time and that has to do with history. And if you look at the music itself, as I've said, uh, one of the crucial themes of of the music is longing, and that lends itself to, I mean, it's, it's, it's nostalgic before there's, there are elements of nostalgia in it before there's a revolution. There are elements of intense longing that constitute a through line in, in Iranian and in Persian culture that can be read in a, in a variety of ways. And I, I don't think that's any accident.
1: Since Arash brought up Gugush, I wonder if you can talk about her briefly here. And for those who might not know a lot about her, some background. How her return to singing and performance in the context of her immigration to the U.S. can be read in light of the nostalgia about, spoken about earlier, say in context of historical moments like the 2009 contested election.
2: Thanks for asking about Gugush. She's so important, and I'm really glad we get the chance to talk about her here. So I guess one of the first things to say about Gugush is that she's so much bigger than Iranian L.A. That's where she's residing now, but in her past career and in her present uh, career, she's just huge. Gugush became a celebrity from a very early age, so I think before getting into too much more about her, maybe give a little background for the three people out there who may not know who she is. So Gugush is a female singer who started her career in pre-revolutionary Iran. She was born in 1950 and her father was a traveling entertainer. She started performing with him on stage when she was a toddler and she has said in interviews that by the age of seven she was earning the money for her family. Their living expenses came from her performances. So she was extremely talented as a singer, a dancer, an actress, even doing some contortion as she was a a really small girl. And she broke into television. There was a more fluid relationship between stage and television and film during those days. And it was not uncommon for people who had started their careers on stage to go uh, and perform on film. Movies in the 1950s uh, were and 1960s and up until the revolution, but especially 1950s and 60s, were often musicals. And this was a great format for Gugush. Uh, some of her early films even look like variety shows. There's sections from Bim, Vaumid, Fear and Hope, her first film performance that showcased her mimicry talents and her mastery of so many different styles of music and her sort of vivacious, coquettish nature from the time she was really young. Anyway, I suggest anybody who hasn't seen early gugush child gugush performances to go and check those out. They're all on YouTube. By the time gugush got into her teens, she had a uh, new uh, area that she could be active in, which was the recording of Musriya Pop. So this is the pop music we've been talking about, which was was very heavily influenced by Western musical styles, Eastern European styles, often with really lush orchestration and arrangements. It was very expensive to produce and Gugush was one of many successful female performers of this genre who were important because of how they sang but also because of how they looked. Gugush was always important uh, for her fashion and her hairstyles. She was emulated by a lot of Young people during the time, famous for cutting off her hair and other people copying her in a hairstyle that people sometimes call the Gugushi. She was continuing to act in films, sometimes to critical acclaim, into the 1970s and she was a really big celebrity. She also performed for the Shah, as did many um, musicians during this period, many of people who were working in national television and radio, which she was. And when the revolution came and female singing was banned and also people who had performed for the Shah or were associated with his government or were seen to embody aspects of his government's um, ideology, all found themselves unwelcome in Iran. As we know, and as we've been discussing, many people who were active in the pre-revolutionary music, television, film, culture industries left Iran. Gugush was different uh, in that she stayed. She was one of the most prominent performers to stay in Iran. When Persian pop music restarted again in exile in Southern California, Gugush was notably absent, silent, unseen. So part of your question was about nostalgia. I think people would have been nostalgic for Gugush no matter what, because she was so present in pre-revolutionary Iran and so so, sort of tied to the uh, romantic glamour of urban nightlife and uh, Western-leaning sophistication that was admired by many, though clearly not everybody in Iran during that time. But the fact that she pretty much disappeared after the revolution and didn't emerge, or 20 years or so, made her kind of available for other people's projections and imaginations and nostalgic fantasies. So while she was gone and sort of absent from public view, a lot of people would, of course, listen to her music. Images of her would circulate online. I have a book that I bought in Los Angeles, like a very sort of homemade looking. It's not homemade, but small uh, press production of a book of songs from... The uh, pre revolutionary period that has this image that somebody found of Gugush and put it on the cover, as if, you know, the image of Gugush is enough to indicate that whole pre revolutionary period. One of the things that has really interested me about Gugush is how, um, in her absence, and then once she re emerged in the 2000s, she came to symbolize a sort of silencing of the Iranian nation for some people, and then the ability to speak or sing out again. So what do I mean by that? One of the things that I've been writing about when, I, when I've written articles and the book chapter about Gugush is how the female voice becomes, the female singing voice in Iranian context has become a political metaphor for the ability to sing to speak, to be heard, to express. And women's singing voices are the most restricted musical medium in Iran still today. So whether or not women who sing intend to be political or intend to have any sort of symbolism around their expression, that kind of symbolism is already there. They're sort of already entangled in politics whether or not they want to be. And not just politics, uh, like state politics, but morality, um, questions about what is uh, legitimate, what's illegitimate, and so on. So with Gugush, there is a documentary that was produced, it was released right as she came out in 2000. So it was recorded before and pr- produced before she was um, out and before people knew she was coming out. The documentary is called uh, Iran's Gugush, Iran's Daughter, and the tagline is, Her silence made her the voice of a nation. And I love that because, first of all, it presses on that paradox of speaking and silencing and so on. But the whole documentary, which is made by Farhad Zamani, Iranian-American based in in the New York, New Jersey area, talks about how um, it, it has like interviews with all of these scholars, fans, people who had worked with Gugush prior, who in one way or another talk about the fact that her silencing speaks to them of the silencing of... Uh, expression within Iran. Now, I say that not as a way of agreeing with that statement, but saying that for lots of people that are interviewed in that film and that I've had conversations with myself, and I'm sure many of you have had conversations with who are listening, the perception is that freedom of expression is really lacking within Iran and that it is something that can be countered by Iranians who leave the country, right? So, When Gugush comes out of Iran in 2000, the circumstances surrounding her exit are still kind of confused or not entirely clear, but she came out, she was granted a passport by the Iranian government, which was quite a liberal government at that period. She went on tour and never came back. She stayed in diaspora and during that tour, She came with a full album already recorded, so we get the sense that this may have been part of a plan to leave. On that album, there were songs that alluded to this political metaphorization of her voice. The idea that she could sing for the nation was a line within the poems. That she would go on stage in front of model of Persepolis, sort of tied her into the kind of celebration of pre-Islamic Iran that we see already in Los Angeles and elsewhere in Diaspora, but also, for me, always kind of suggests a sort of glorification of the pre-Islamic, which is really important in Diaspora, as a indirect statement about valuing things besides Islam in the Iranian identity. Another aspect, you know, so Gugush finally settled in Los Angeles and needed to restart her career. And for maybe some of you have had this experience too. I've gone to see her in concert a few times and you know, she's released a lot of albums since she's been out of the country. But her performed repertoire tends to be pre-revolutionary material, the music that people know by heart and who sing along with her really loudly. And when she performs, she also performs with images of herself as a young pre-revolutionary a woman in the pre-revolutionary era. So that there's this kind of doubling effect of we have Gugusha of the present and we have Gugusha of the past. And it's a kind of, you know, she's making the most of these nostalgic associations with her, which of course many singers who've had long careers do, Iranian and otherwise. But for me, it's really interesting because so much of that nostalgia grew up around her while she wasn't active and singing. And now that she's out... She and the people that she works with have seen the value of trading on that nostalgia in her performance. One other aspect of her performance post-immigration is she's taken on a kind of political voice. So not just a return to singing voice, but a more active role in singing or speaking about political issues. Now, this was not a part of Gugusha's pre-revolutionary persona. She steered clear of this kind of stuff. She was a performer stayed on stage, but after um, immigrating to the United States and getting involved in the, in the Tehrangelist music industry and really a larger transnational Iranian expatriate uh, media industry, she became more active in making statements that either directly or indirectly criticized actions by the Iranian government. So one of the clearest examples of that is around 2009, when there were many protests, arrests, and killings within Iran following the contested re-election of President Ahmadinejad. So a lot of people spoke out during this period in diaspora. Gugush was one of them. She went to the UN and gave a speech outside. She did a hunger strike, pretty short one, but she did it. And um, she also recorded a song called Man Hamun Iranam, that I am that very Iran, that referred to... The video really was more a direct reference to the 2009 protests, but the video spoke literally as Iran, Right the metaphorization of gugush was something that she then performed as the nation speaking so in that song she actually sings as mama vatan as the mother as mother iran calling to her children to come home and help her so, I mean, I find her a totally fascinating figure. And I guess one thing I would say is I would really love it if more people would do research on Gugush. I think there's so much out there, so much about her in her early life, in her pre-revolutionary life. And she is just too important of a figure for there to be so little written about her. I really want to encourage anybody who's out there who's listening who might have an interest to go for it.
3: One thing I wanted to say, I mean, it's interesting. Farzan, I, I was talking about Uh, Shahbal. Well, my experience with Shahbal, the first time I (laughs) met Shahbal was on stage at a wedding when I was asked to give a toast. And so that was my, you know, first interaction with him. And it's not it's not an accident. A lot of times my first my initial exposure to and encounters with people were with pop singers were at weddings because I was lucky enough to attend a lot of these fairly lavish gatherings where they were for hire. And that's something that I feel really fortunate to have to have witnessed up close and been a part of because I was able in a very real sense to soak up what was happening, even if I wasn't really fully aware at times, particularly as a young kid of what the individual artists were going through and what their struggles were and what the realities of trying to survive and make a living were in Los Angeles in the 1980s. So that you had a lot of people who had the stage, had a national stage in Iran, had production facilities and producers and assistants, and you know a lot of resources were feted and were celebrated and esteemed as as real artists. To go from that to you know working part time as a singer and then maybe doing a bit of real estate or having to run a supermarket or a gas station was a really, one can imagine a really intense thing to go through. And I saw the evolution in some sense of these careers in these spaces where people had to, you know, make ends meet and do what they had to do to make some money. And over time reach a point where at least with the top tier of these artists um, begin to go from let's say the the clubs to larger theaters to in some cases arenas and stadiums Uh, now that they are you know rightly viewed as as national treasures again writ largely right so that you know ebby might have been doing a small nightclub but then later on would play a venue like the Greek theater. And then as we go along, we see that, you know, they're doing concerts in tandem with other people or solo concerts at some of the most celebrated and largest capacity venues in not just Los Angeles, but around around the world.
4: Hello, this is Persis Karim, director for the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University. I'm sure like me, you're enjoying this wonderful conversation about the story of Persian pop in Los Angeles. Because it got to be so long, we decided to break it into two episodes. We hope you'll listen next week for part two of this rich and nuanced conversation about our culture and music and the importance of Los Angeles in the global Iranian diaspora. I want to thank Nazli Buzari, and Samira Singleton, especially for instigating this conversation, as well as the many interns, student employees, and volunteers who've come through the doors of the Center over the past year and a half and contributed to the rich storytelling of our global Iranian diaspora. I hope you'll also follow us on our social media platforms and consider signing up for our newsletter, as well as making a donation to the many projects that we're engaged with at this moment, including our digital archive project, our documentary film, The Dawn is Too Far, Stories of Iranian American Life, and of course, the Delba Del Badel podcast. Thank you. Stay tuned for part two. Thank you again to
1: our guests, Professor Farzana Hemasi and Arash Saidiña for this exciting and important discussion. Please make sure to check out Farzana's book, Tehranjala's Dreaming, Intimacy and Imagination in Southern California's Iranian Pop Music through her website, farzana-hemasi.com. Also, make sure to check out Arash's compilation, Pomegranates, available here on Spotify as well as on finderskeepersrecords.com. Also, thank you to the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies at San Francisco State University and Persis Karim, who serves as its director. A big shout-out and thank you to Ariana Damavandi, Communications Manager at the Center for Guidance, Samira Hapozo-Darashti for Research, and Center Intern Joseph Ara for Editing and Tech. And thank you to Ariana Bustoni for the music. To learn more about the Center for Iranian Diaspora Studies, go to the website at www.ids.sfsu.edu. Thank you.